we're big on opinion on this series and not so much on science. Well, it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, there's not much science in this area. There's just opinion. If you don't want to run any risk of being sued, then go into another business. You must have a plausible, realistic, alternative diagnosis. This guy's a four-alarm fire. These guys don't come in. You as the emergency doctor can't follow every case through to the end. We can't do it. I think one of the things that we should acknowledge is that the garden variety stress test stinks. It just doesn't work. That's what frightens me. Hey, Risk Management Monthly coming to you August 2008. I got with me Mel Herbert on the right and Greg Henry on the left. Hello, Rick. Hello. I can't believe it. We're here at Casa Bucata. Yes, it you are. You lucky duckie. It's only about 480 million degrees in California today. Yeah, it's hot yeah. today, but we actually have air conditioning on. We're relatively comfortable, and we're going to do a bang-up issue. But before we get started... I want to acknowledge everybody who has been putting comments and suggestions onto our website through the risk management survey monkey kind of thing that we have survey there. Monkey. By the way, to the guy who said under comments, Greg, you suck. <laughs> Take a hike. All right. No, actually, we thank you very much. We want more. We like your ideas with regards to things that you'd like to see covered. We'd like to see your comments. We want Mel to say, stop saying ladies. You know, <laughs> I, Some people are taking offense with that. You know? I, I, I think I, it's funny. Yeah, I think, you know what, we can't cover every situation <laughs> they here. They look like ladies to me. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> All right, so please take a minute, get on their website, riskmanagementmonthly.com, and give us your two cents. The other thing that came up is a lot of people don't know that we have CME for this. CME, can you believe that? How can have, they miss that? Well, Why else would you listen to us? <laughs> <laughs> there is That's CME true. for this. I think it's two hours a month, 24 hours a year. And did you know? That's half the CME you need to keep your license in the state of Michigan. That's pretty good. Well, Michigan has very lax standards, as we know. <laughs> the that. Rust Belt states. The two hours a month. Did you know that New York and Massachusetts both required something like 10 or 12 hours of risk management education per year? Yes, and did they can know? get double that. With just one year of us. In the survey, some of our osteopathic colleagues were bellyaching because they can't get their highest level of credit, which I don't know exactly what it's called. The only way you are going to get the highest level of credit is to bring on some osteopaths. So you know what the problem here is. The AOA is basically a bit of stick in the mud. They won't give you credit for programs unless you have a certain proportion of osteopathic physicians. And that's just honestly not going to happen. Sorry. Blame the AOA. Also... Some people have suggested that they want to keep taking the test until they pass. Well, that test, honestly, is so easy. I mean, please, you're making me a little nervous that you're passing this open book test and you're complaining about it. So, please, I understand where you're coming from. But the good part about it is, as of this issue or the previous issue, you can go back to the very beginning, which was June last year. And all of those issues now are free and a part of your subscription. And if you want the CME, you can go back there and take that the answer should be in our little four-page summary. Okay, that's if, enough of that if stuff. If you don't get it right, call me up personally, and I'll <laughs> tell you the answers. He's got nothing better to do than yeah. to do the test for you. The quiz. Exactly. 
Well, there are some other themes that we picked up when we did our review and we listened to your feedback. We care. We care deeply about what you say. People say that they really like real cases and clinical topics, so we're going to keep that in mind. We're going to try and do real cases, clinical topics, bring this stuff that we have here back to the bedside is what you said. But we also have to then take it back the other way too for some general principles but I think they'll find that pretty much everything we bring you this month is a real case. This is going to be good. They also talked about producing a bulletproof charts. That's sort of a recurring theme. Tell us what lawyers are looking for. Remember that paper is cheap. We're going to do a nice chart. We're going to do a really good job of documenting why we are such fine clinicians that we have practiced at or above a similarly trained emergency physician in the field. So we're going to keep doing that. Let's stop for just one second. Of the three cases I've looked at this week that have been sent to me for opinions. The bulletproof chart is often an elusive beast, but there are two or three things which are done every time which get you into trouble. One of those is if you have a conversation with someone, write down their name and the time you called because all of these cases are structured as to what happened over a period in time. There is nothing as useful is knowing what time the consultant spoke to you on the phone, when they're going to be in, what's going to happen. This is how these things are recreated in court. And to help in that regard, we have a call log at our hospital. We ask the clerks to make the call to this consultant, that consultant. They make the call. They put it down in the book. When the consultant calls back in, we put it down in the book kind of thing so that it's essential when you're trying to establish a chronology that you have some kind of evidence. And so this wasn't done by accident. This was done because of the necessity to have it. The other thing is, when you speak to an institution, 85% of us are institutions Mel's where an institution. We, what? Mel's an institution. And he should be an institution. 85% of us are in an institution where occasionally we have to transfer a patient. Well, if you speak to someone at the referral center, you didn't speak to the University of Michigan. You spoke to Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones. Put their name down so we know who you spoke with, who accepted the care. You didn't speak to urology. You spoke to, again, Dr. Jones, Dr. Smith. We want to be able to recreate the path if we need to know what to do. I can't tell you how important that is when a lawsuit happens. What else here? Some people noted that their ER groups won't go to hospitals unless their emergency physician can dictate charts. What's up with that, Greg? Is a uh, dictated chart better than a written chart? There's no question that for the attending on the outside, there's nothing as good as a few well-dictated paragraphs. Ask any of them. If they get a templated chart with checkboxes, you cannot recreate a complex medical or surgical history off those charts. What they're good for is for the checkbox type things, review of systems. They're very good for things like a foreign body in the eye or a broken finger. What they're no good for is grandma's been weak and dizzy since 1947. There's no good checkbox for that. And I understand the problem of the cost of dictation is horrendous. What would be good is a combination chart where you can checkbox all those things that can be checkboxed and have the ability on complex medical cases or those where the course of treatment or therapy went awry, the option of dictating. A lot of things happen which don't have a checkbox. For example, let's say the family pulls a knife and threatens to kill you. <laughs> is there oh, a checkbox for that? <laughs> there is in Detroit. 
in Detroit, <laughs> that's a checkbox. But most places, it's not a checkbox. And so how do you then express that kind of situation that you're functioning under? Let's say the lab is down. Let's say something else is down. There's no checkbox for a pattern of treatment which is going awry. And I think at that moment in time, the smart emergency doctor saves himself by making some notes that can be reproduced at a later time. And I do think it is important to remember that paper is cheap, and sometimes we feel constrained to use the checkbox paper and not have some other place where we could write a progress note or something referring Go to Go in the bathroom. They have rolls of it, <laughs> and you can continue to write. Yeah, yeah I like that. Some people have bemoaned the fact that we're big on opinion on this series and not so much on science. Well, it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, there's not much science in this area. There's just opinion. And we have Greg here for that reason. We have he the most opinionated reviewed, person that we know. <laughs> he's reviewed billions and billions of his own charts and a couple of other people's, so he knows a lot about this stuff. That's right. The only reason you could be on this tape is you either know a lot about malpractice or you've committed most every major sin. And since we probably hit all of those areas here at the table, but people would like a simple solution or a simple set of studies which tell you exactly what to do. Each lawsuit is a world unto itself. Each courtroom creates its own reality. What we try and do is position you to be in the best possible spot. But honestly, if you don't want to run any risk of being sued, <laughs> then go into another business because you are, by definition, in a high-risk specialty. So another comment that we got here is that we need to remember that listeners are from all sorts of hospitals and represent settings from the rural areas to academic big centers in big cities, and we've got to try and do a better job of taking what we say and extrapolating it to different practice environments. So I'm going to little note here, and I'm going to remind us, so I'm going to say, Greg... How does this relate to the guy in the single coverage year? How does this relate to the multi... And we can handle that because both Rick and I are in single covered ERs most of the time. Although Rick's is city, mine is pretty rural. Driving into that hospital, there are horse farms. So I think that we can qualify on that point. Other people said we should do more bounce backs. And, well, actually, that's an MRAP series. But uh, we should do a few on here, and that concept is very good. Hey, that's his yeah. book that he consulted on. Yes, yes exactly and right. Actually, what we did is we've stolen some of those chapters, and we should do a few of those on risk management because they go across very well. Now, here's one that comes up a lot. Some people want more stuff regarding EMTs, PAs, nurse practitioners, regarding their work and what they do and what your relationship with these people is and the litigation that is associated with that. This, this is, is a deal. little tough because we've been doing this now for 14 months, and so a lot of that has been covered in prior issues. And that's why each of you should, if you're just a recent subscriber, go back and listen to the MP3s on the prior issues because a lot of that was covered. They've asked an interesting question, though, here, a more specific question. That is, when the PAs or the EMTs, the nurse practitioners, are hospital employees, and the doctors themselves are independent contractors, does that change the nature of the relationship? The answer is it changes the nature of the insurance relationship because clearly the hospital and hospital employees are covered under one insurance program, the physician under another. But in most hospital emergency departments, PAs and nurse practitioners have a specific relationship defined by hospital policy for oversight, for management of the care, particular physician assistants. They are, by definition, PAs. They're assistants to the doctor. And so what happens under the doctor's watch is the doctor's responsibility. 
And I think that it would be short-sighted of you to think that just because they're paid by the hospital, I'm not in charge or I have no liability for any of those cases that they see. Well, you are the supervising physician. Exactly right. And you've signed a paper that says that you are and that you take that responsibility. So independent of where the paychecks come, where the confusion gets to be is their insurance company is not necessarily your advocate. Absolutely not. You may be on opposite sides. You have one plaintiff. But if there are five different doctors or entities being sued, then that's how many sides that the defense table actually has. After all, the job of those lawyers is not looking for truth or beauty. It's looking for paying the least amount of money on behalf of their client. And so I think that you need to have these things straightened out in advance as to who's going to be taking responsibility for what. By the way, Hospital administrators always say things to you like, well, we don't really see that this is a problem in this environment. Just understand, you can't tell the local perspective and generalize that to the malpractice world. All you need is one case in your place. You need to have proper rules for who's in charge of what laid out. Some people also want us to continue to challenge the validity of common emergency department practice. For example, having to wait 15 minutes before a patient goes home after giving them a pill or waiting till their kid is afebrile before they go home, that kind of stuff. So we'll, we'll continue to do that. Yeah, we like to poke fun at some of those. And actually, the one that the fellow specifically mentioned was this idea about our ER won't let them go home until 15 minutes after they've taken a pill. And he thinks that's pretty stupid. And I think that he is right that it's pretty stupid. When you write a prescription, you have to have the first dose of that medicine taken in the presence of the pharmacist kind of thing. So when you drop dead, they can call 911. So I do think that's pretty nutty. Yeah, Yeah, it's nutty. And I don't think there's any defense for it. It's like the old fever phobia thing where our nurses used to say, if the temperature hasn't gone down by a degree, they don't want them out the door People have looked at that continuously. There was no evidence that that meant. So we'll shoot at those as we come across them. Now, uh, some people want to hear a mock deposition, which I think is a really good idea, and we're going to do that on a future episode. Get some smart lawyer to come in and just grill us like we're on the stand. Yeah, people really say really this smart lawyer. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, you'd be nice. All right, we'll be nice. We'll be nice. Friend. Okay. A lot of people want Rick to stop saying etc. 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 I think I had a series of little strokes <laughs> over the last several months. That has made me totally unaware of some of these things that I'm saying. See, the problem, etc., is it was Yul Brenner's line in The King and I, etc., 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 and it had to be said three times. It had to be said three times, exactly right. So, and Rick's an old guy, and you know what a fan he is of musicals. And actually, a lot of people say we sometimes ramble too much. So, on that point. Why don't we get into the meat of this one? Yes, we've decided here to take on a topic that we have been assiduously avoiding since the beginning because, frankly, I think it is the hardest topic to avoid. We've done on the aneurysms, the secondary aneurysms, we did bacterial infections in the back, and those are pretty. Yes, they're very discreet kind of things. This is about low risk chest pain patients. Greg will acknowledge, I think, that this is still on the top of the list as the biggest cause of exchange of money between insurance companies and plaintiffs or their family of the former plaintiffs. About 30% of the insurance dollar has to do with some complaint in the chest. Now, they're not all MIs or missed MIs. There's a few PEs thrown in there. There's the very occasional dissecting aneurysm. There's a few other things that get thrown in. But if you said 30% of the money goes to chest pain, you'd be about right. So we're going to start off on trying to go through low-risk chest pain. High-risk chest pain is easy. 
Yep. That's easy. Admit, Kethleb, uh, Give them some platelet inhibitors and maybe this or a little of that. That is easy. It's the ones who go home that we are concerned about. Those are the ones we're getting our butt sued on. Now, Greg has always talked in the past about the acceptable minimum risk. Are you allowed any margin of error here, or does everyone have to be caught and you're negligent if they're not? I think the general numbers are somewhere around 2%. We send home 2%. Well, that depends on how you look at the data, but clearly in the past, it was more like at 4% of MIs got out the door. Now, the last time people looked was about 2 I think it's going to be considerably less than that. And the thing that's changed in the last five years is multiple enzymes and multiple EKGs and out the door. If you actually look at that group of people, we're doing pretty well with. It's that group of people that were casual in kind of listening to the story and out the door, still that's probably 1% get out the door. And You know, in whatever system you're dealing with, I don't care whether it's the Canadians or the Brits or the Australians, there's going to be a small number of folks whose presentation is so unusual and so minimal that they're going to be very difficult to pick up. We'd like to minimize that, but by the same token, we don't want to take every 21-year-old with a cough and work him up for a myocardial infarct. At some point, there's got to be some balance here. Well, one of the reasons we kind of waited is that there are some new guidelines that I think every emergency physician should be familiar with regarding two topics. The first guideline is the 2007 focus update of the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, 2004 guidelines for the management of patients with ST elevation MIs. So this is ST elevation MIs. This was published January 15, 2008, so it is quite recent. Hot, Hot off the press. press. <laughs> <laughs> this was the basis for our EMA essay in July. The other one that is also hot off the press is entitled American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, 2007 Guidelines for the Management of Patients with Unstable Angina and Non-ST Elevation MIs. The prior recommendations were 2007, so this is a total redo. It's a five-year redo, and this is by far much more interesting to us than the STEMIs. STEMIs, we got it. The harder thing is the unstable angina and non-ST elevation MIs. And of that set, the unstable angina is the harder one. Well, the problem here is when you've got a STEMI, All the problems lie in organization and mobilization. You've made the diagnosis. It's not a problem. The problem with the non-elevation ST elevations is that what are you looking at? It's the diagnosis is the question. Emergency medicine has two things, disposition and diagnosis. In the STEMI, it's disposition. In all other chest pains, it's diagnosis. Yeah, let's be clear about the new nomenclature that people use, because it's actually changed a lot in the last 10 years. New no, no what? Nomenclature. That's, I thought uh, it was nomenclature. You got the emphasis uh, on the wrong on syllable. That, yeah. It's American. You are ignorant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but here's how it goes. So somebody comes in, chest pain, they've got ST segment elevation, and they get an enzyme rise. That's ST segment elevation MI. Can I just stop you? Yep. Let's stop saying the word enzyme. We're calling them markers now. Okay. Marker. Thank you. You're right. Marker. You're absolutely Thank you very correct much. as Let's always. Be... Their markers go up. That's an ST segment elevation MI, STEMI. If they have a marker elevation without ST segment elevation, that's a non-STEMI. Also, very bad prognosis. They need lots of stuff done. Won't necessarily get thrombolytics because thrombolytics don't work in that group. And then there is unstable angina, which by definition does not have a marker rise. And so that's the group we miss now. We don't miss the people with raises in their troponins because we keep these people, we watch them 12 hours, they don't have... We miss the non-marker elevation acute coronary syndromes, which actually turn out to be 
a huge number of people. We don't miss many of them in terms of a percent, and they tend to do well overall. There are so many of this group of people. This is where we are still missing the occasional patient, which is a bit of a problem. Well, the they other tend things- to do amazingly well, though, Mel. If you actually look at those people who've come into the department, have had markers done over four to six hours, repeat EKGs, in the largest study done, when followed over the next 30 days, less than one in a thousand drop dead from an MI. That gives you time to work those patients up with some sort of provocative test, a stress test, that sort of thing, understanding that even with the stress test, there's going to be a small number that we do not diagnose. But then the question comes, do you send all those people stress positive or negative for coronary artery studies? Well, actually, we're going to get into that specifically because the people that we're seeing are, by definition, unstable angina. And that is a big differentiator from the pre-established, you have coronary disease, this is angina, what made you come today kind of thing versus I've never had this before or I've had this before, but it's coming much more frequently and it's lasting much longer and it's more intense. Those are kind of like a warning sign that things are not going well and perhaps you're going down the road to having an infarction and you want to intervene. I just want to pick up on a math issue, though, just so people understand what I was saying, which is, so if Greg's true and you're only missing one out of a thousand, if you see a million people with chest pain, which is very easy to do now, we're up to 120 million emergency department visits a year, that means you're going to miss a thousand people. So although it's a very low risk in any individual patient, the total number of patients is still significant in terms of the medical legal risk overall. Because there's so many of these people. It's like Greg told me years ago, Mel, when you're in China and somebody says, you're one in a million guy, there's 1,300 people just like you. And I thought that was one of his best jokes, so I'll keep repeating it. (laughs) And they all look the same to me. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Okay, here's the case, gentlemen. Let's take an actual case and talk about it. 55-year-old male, already a problem. He's just a kid, isn't he, Rick? Absolutely. (laughs) 55-year-old male. Well, at his desk at work, suddenly develops some persistent heaviness in his mid-chest without radiation and becomes a little clammy. This sounds like a famous TV star not very long ago, doesn't it? (laughs) He's not had anything like this before, and he's concerned. When it persists for 20 minutes, he asks a co-worker to drive him to the local ED. On arrival, the patient is feeling improved to the point of considering not registering in He decides since he was there, though, he'll go in and just be checked out. Always a problem. Here's a hard-driving, hard-working, tax-paying citizen who now feels okay. Those are the people that are tough to convince to stay. The nurse checks him out. Blood pressure 140 over 80, pulse 85, respiratory rate 18, temperature 99, pulse ox not taken. He has no past history of hypertension, diabetes, or smoking. Family history is pertinent for a history of coronary artery disease in his father, who had a bypass at age 60. His physical exam is entirely benign, with no chest wall tenderness or pain on breathing or movement. Patient's EKG is normal or near normal, minimal T-wave flattening anteriorly, without ST segment elevation or depression. The first troponin is zero. His chest x-ray is normal as well. Gentlemen, this sounds like every third patient I have some nights in the emergency department. Right, and I think as we go down this path, one of the things I think we should differentiate is we're not in any way suggesting what the standard of care is. I think what we're going to try to do is to tell you what the Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology thinks are reasonable things to do 
because the reason I think it's important is because there are people who do one troponin and there are people who do one EKG. And I don't want to say that that's not a reasonable thing to do. Although, Greg, you've been involved in a lot of cases. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that you take on the cases that go to court where there's lawsuits, but there's a denominator here of a bajillion people where one EKG and one troponin was done, and they got away with it just fine. I understand that. What I'm going to say is this. Whenever I see one EKG and one marker, whatever they've decided to get, and I don't care which one you get, the plaintiff has an advantage. There is no question about it. Because what they're going to say is, show me the paper, See, we've got a paper on three AKGs and three sets of markers and what their risk is. Show me the paper about the one marker, the one EKG, and how safe they are. You know what? That paper doesn't exist in the literature. Rick, I think you ought to do that paper at your place. Just start doing everybody with one marker, and we'll see how you do over the next 10 years. Let's get back to this for a second. Let's just take a stop here. Okay, so this person's come in. He had chest pain. He's relatively young. This chest pain could be something bad or not bad. This is how we talk to the residents about it. Worst first, what are the bad diagnoses I need to exclude? So I need to think, is this person having MI? Is he having acute coronary syndrome? Is he having a P? Is he having a dissection? Is he having bore halves? So we're going through this process of trying to work out worst first. So once we've decided it's none of the other things, which usually it's fairly easy to work out whether you've ripped your esophagus in half, the next series of questions then is about ruling out acute coronary syndrome. So that's what this tape's about, right? So... What are the history and physical examination things that are predictive that this person has the disease or doesn't have the disease? Well, can I step back once? Because you did talk about excluding the killers, the chest killers. And I think that maybe this is not exactly the place to put it, but I think before we jump down to the path of, okay, everything else has been excluded, I think we need to do a self-serving chart that makes it clear that we've considered dissection, we've considered PE, and that we've considered Borjavs by historical kinds of things. Now, the big two are dissection and PE. So I don't think it's unreasonable to put down in your physical examination things that are traditionally associated with these diagnoses, even though we know the literature says that is often not the case when they really have the disease. But the fact that you have looked at the legs and don't find any evidence of calf tenderness or swelling or erythema, or that you have felt the pulses and the pulses are equal, that basically tells the reader of the chart that you thought about this diagnosis of aortic dissection. I've listened to the neck. I'm listening for aortic regurgitant murmurs. Those kinds of things tell the people this doctor has considered these diagnoses as well. Yeah, and if you're looking at the history, I have never understood the diagnosis of PE completely. I thought I did when I was a junior medical student. Now I realize it's a mysterious disease. But if we're going to look at the pretest probability that you have a PE, this case, we've got a 45-year-old guy, and we'll say for the sake of argument here... 55. 55. He has not been on any long trips. He is not a smoker. He doesn't take estrogens. Birth control pills. He doesn't take birth control pills. He has not just gotten off an airplane from Singapore. He hasn't had cancer. He hasn't had an operation. He hasn't had a cast on his leg. You know, at some point in time, if you work through that algorithm, and I don't care whose system you use, just pick one of the current names. What you did was fine. Yeah. Well, all I'm saying is you cannot work up everybody from this point on for a P.E., so can I ask you a specific question then? So I'm now the yeah, doc and I'm out there and I'm working away. Which is more protective for me, to have a little sentence in the chart that says 
no calf swelling, no shortness of breath, as my little spiel that says to the person reading the chart, he was thinking about PE and ruled it out. Or can I just write, I thought about PE, this person doesn't have it, or they're very low risk. Do I do a mixture of both, or can I just make a statement that says, I thought about it? If you say in the chart, history taken, low risk for PE, that's probably enough, because what that means, if it ever came to a case, they'd have to say, what do you mean low risk? That is, I sat down and I asked him about these five things, which I always ask. It is my usual my and customary usual... practice to ask about and then list off 20 causes of... Exactly. Which, which you never ask them about. <laughs> right. But you're used to asking certain kinds of questions. You can do whatever shorthand makes you happy, but at least that you've thought about the disease entity. It's not that you're so dumb you didn't think of it. You're so smart, you went through and ruled out those people who are at intermediate or high-risk probability under, again, I don't care which system you want to talk about for PE, because they do vary, I think, in their sensitivities. But at some point in time, this gentleman, as we've presented him, does not fall into a PE category. The reason I ask that is because you've listed this call these epidemiologic risk factors for PE. There's probably 20 or more of them. And what I'm trying to get at, if I just listed 15, will you, the smart plaintiff attorney, say, well, you didn't ask about trauma, you didn't ask about this one, rather than just say, look, I think this person's a low risk because they have no risk factors. I've asked the usual and common, the usual and ordinary causes. Medications, travel, cancer, those sorts of things. That's really where the PEs are. But however you've done it, you've conveyed in writing that you've considered this diagnosis and that you do not think the person has a very, very, very low likelihood and you're not going to go down that path. Right. Right. And that's the same for aortic dissection. You could say, I think they're low risk, or you can say, I did pulses in both arms and there's no pain through to the back, so I can do these things, which a medical student would say, oh, he was thinking about dissection and he doesn't have a risk factor. And here's a guy with minimal pain, with no history of increased blood pressure, who you're going to shoot a chest X-ray on, again, at some point in time, if you decided to take all these people for angiography, I think it's overkill. No, obviously we're not going there, but we're trying to build up the case that we have considered that we look at the chest X-ray, chest X-ray, lung fields are normal, no widened mediastinum. As soon as you put that no widened mediastinum down there, I think you have substantially helped your case. Well, by three quarters. Three quarters of the cases of dissection have a widened mediastinum. One quarter still does not. And you know what? It's unfortunate, but that is true. So we're going to do the same thing for ACS. We're going to list high-risk features and low-risk features. It was sharp or it was heavier or it was radiating or non-radiating. And so we're going to go through that list for acute coronary syndromes as well. And if we really think this person's low-risk, we're probably going to buff the chart with here's all the low-risk things and here are no-risk, high-risk features, right? After all, this is how you're thinking. This is how we think. Yeah, we're not making this up just to make it up. Of course not. Although, I think there was a very important point made in the recommendations by the AHA, and it was basically that all of those risk factors pale compared to markers that are elevated. You could have none of them. Of course. And the fact of the matter is, is that you still must consider the diagnosis. Yes, the likelihood is low. You've already talked about a normal EKG. You've already talked about this benign history. And now you've added some other issues that make this appear benign. But the fact of the matter is, you have not excluded unstable angina. I think that the coronary risk factors, the way we've learned them, are particularly useful in a family practitioner's office for counseling people about lifestyle changes or testing that may need to be done. For the person sitting in front of you in the emergency department, 
just because he doesn't have a brother who had an MI, just because he doesn't smoke, just because he doesn't have hypertension, doesn't mean he's not having an MI and none of them are good enough. And no combination is good enough to say that that rules the situation. Yeah, this person has been determined to be more or less low risk just based on his history. Yes. You add in all of those negative risk factors, and they, it really has not substantially changed the fact that you have not excluded unstable angina. This concept is very important because I think some people, some of our colleagues still don't understand it. Those risk factors, traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease were developed in places like Framingham over five years. If you're a diabetic, you're four times more likely to have coronary artery disease. But you have selected out from that huge mass of people out there, I've got chest pain in the emergency department, that alone, and actually the historical description of the pain so overwhelms epidemiologic risk factors that it doesn't become useful unless... And this is true on the Timmy scoring system and other scoring system, unless you have multiple of those things. So you've got a bad story, but you're a diabetic hypertensive but it, whose dad died at 32. Then honestly, it's not going to change what I do. None of those is going to change what I do because this story is so suspicious in this person. Well, in this person, yes. But I'm talking about where the story is, eh, I'm not so worried we, about it. Well, let's step back one other. Let's well, take two cliff. steps back. Okay. <laughs> now we've got a 55-year-old guy. And like most 55-year-old guys, he doesn't go to doctors. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want health care. This is a guy who works for a living, who's not looking for drugs. You know what? You've now picked out a guy. I think that's really true. Who, oh, when he comes in, I'm thinking, wait a minute. You don't go to the hospital. Why are you here today? And now he's got a story. Which, it'd be nice if I could say, well, you got a temperature, you're coughing up a little sputum, I hear a couple rowels. Okay, maybe you've got pneumonia. He's got nothing. That's what frightens me. Well, I think my problem here is that I've tried to broaden this discussion out. But if we're talking specifically about this guy, absolutely agree. With this guy's a four-alarm fire. These guys don't come in. Right. When he comes in and says, I had something really bad in my chest 20 minutes yesterday, I'm like, you got something bad. <laughs> when I was a resident at Dartmouth, we had a joke, and that was, if a Vermont farmer comes in, admit him. Why? Because they never came in. Right. They only came in when they were about to die. Well, I think people often forget that people don't like going to the ER. They have other things to do. It's often very easy to become kind of a cynic about this and say, oh, there's another ER abuser kind of thing. When in fact, a person like this, you have to take them very, very seriously because in fact, it took a lot to drive them to this emergency department. They don't want to be there. They're heavily into denial. And knowing that, if they're there, you've got to take them seriously. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is the exact kind of case and I think we need to be honest about this, that depending on where we are in our shift, the kind of day we're having, how things hit us, how they impress us, you could either go one way or the other with this case. This is where you get sucked in. I don't think it takes much of an ER doc to pick up obvious cases. This is a tougher case. This is the kind of case who could get dismissed for a lot of reasons. I can hear Sean Henderson right now saying one of his criticisms about this series is that sometimes we make it sound like, therefore, we admit everybody with chest pain. That's not what we're saying. And so let me broaden it out again. So you're going to take a history, you're going to look at these historical features, and you're going to decide very high risk, get admitted. Ridiculously low risk, 19-year-old, reproducible chest pain after they lifted a... He didn't have any of that. This guy is not that. We're talking about this guy specifically. He is a concern. His history is a concern. Everything about him suggests... 
he could have And the you have no alternative diagnosis. Within the last two weeks, I've overseen the settlement of a case where the emergency doc said a 62-year-old guy was working on his boat. So he was pulling his boat trailer by himself. Got some chest pain. So they write him off as muscular skeletal chest pain. Yet on examination, there was no musculoskeletal. <laughs> if, if you have a muscular... No muscular or skeletal? Oh, no musculoskeletal. The thing is, if you're going to call it muscular skeletal pain, you ought to be able to reproduce that right, pain. Right. I don't mind them saying that he pulled his pectoralis muscle if the pectoralis muscle is truly tender. But wait a second. I've got a 62-year-old guy who has mild diabetes and hypertension, by the way, who's pulling his 4,000-pound boat on its trailer to hook it up to his car and gets chest pain. On Yahoo Today, there was a medical report of the proximity of unusual exertion within three days of a myocardial infarction. That exertion could have been three days ago, and you're manifesting your symptoms today, or your unstable angina, or this new onset and, you know, there clearly is a relationship, but this guy has happened at work. The key factor in the settlement of this case was, and the plaintiff's counsel was on this, he was all over this like a cheap suit. He said, if it's muscular skeletal pain, show me on your exam where his muscle hurt. Well, I saw a case where the person gave them a nitroglycerin and the pain got better, and the diagnosis was esophageal spasm. Out the door, dead. Yeah out the door dead. It's like you must have a plausible, realistic, alternative diagnosis, or this person has got ACS until proven otherwise. See, I don't mind giving people nitro tablets. You just don't use it as a diagnostic test. It's like giving people antacids. All those studies are clearly done. There are plenty of people who had coronary pain who, if you give them an antacid, do they feel a little better? Yes. By the way, it's how we ask the question. You feel a little better, don't you? <laughs> 50% of people are doctor pleasers. And they're very happy to say, oh, yes, doctor, I'm feeling somewhat better. But again, I want to extend it outside this case because this, we're all agrees in this case is pretty easy. But isn't there lots of times where people come in, I've got a pain here, this is sore over here, I do a physical exam, I do a history, I can't find anything, and I say, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's anything bad. Well, what I chose not to get into is all of these atypical cases they're much more difficult. I want to get into kind of a straightforward. You know, you could say, right. well, in women, they have more fatigue, they have more shortness of breath, diabetics, more silent, those kinds of things. And yes, there is this larger spectrum of people who surprise you because they don't have any of the more typical signs of acute coronary syndrome. But there are lots of cases like this who are not handled the way I think you need to safely handle them. Let me ask a question to you guys. What do you think the significance is? You've heard the story on this patient. And he, again, sounds like half the chest pain cases which are sent to me. What's the significance of a normal or near-normal EKG? I expect him to have a normal or near-normal EKG. If he's got acute coronary syndrome, a normal EKG is completely consistent with that diagnosis. Well, here's the numbers. It's important to recognize this. I'm reading from my essay here. It's important to recognize that a normal EKG does not exclude ACS in that 1% to 6% of such patients prove to have an STEMI. And at least 4% will have unstable angina. That's 1 in 25. And that's the minimum. That's the low number. So you got the first one, and it's normal. If they're having re- any recurrence of pain, there was no pain kind of that's going on now. Recurrence, another EKG. Now you can see there is some ST changes to some depression here, those kinds of things. Or the first marker is normal. I think that the theme here is 
these people need to be hang around either your chest pain unit or your ER or some place where they can get a serial measurement of their EKGs and their troponins. And during that time, if they remain asymptomatic, no more pain, no PVCs, no this, that, or the other thing, then they're considered really low risk. And- but they're not considered not to have acute coronary syndrome. What they're considered to be is stable at that moment. And what you should tell them is, we know that it's been six hours, normal troponins, normal EKGs. What we know is at this moment in time, you look safe to be discharged home. Can you follow up? I've set up a stress test for you tomorrow or in two days. Yeah, we're going to like talk that. about that yeah. when you make that decision at the end. So let me start But we're not again. there yet. A right. normal EKG is entirely consistent with the diagnosis of an acute coronary syndrome, especially unstable angina. So MIs, 5% of ultimately proven SD segment elevation or Q-wave MIs have normal EKGs, but of unstable angina patients, the majority of patients with unstable angina, if they don't have chest pain in front of you, are going to have a normal EKG. Yes, absolutely. So that's entirely consistent with the diagnosis that this guy has an acute coronary syndrome. What it is, it's not that it's one way or the other. A positive EKG is easy. It's positive. A negative one is indeterminate. It doesn't say you don't have something. What it says is, as I'm looking at you at this moment in time, I cannot see anything. That doesn't mean if I look over a period of time, I won't find something. Really very fundamental concept. You can't say your EKG is normal, you're normal. Now, every emergency doctor will acknowledge that. But there are some consequences to this decision-making process that says, this normal EKG doesn't help me. Doesn't help me. Abnormal EKG does help me. Always. We can extend that way beyond acute coronary syndromes and to basically all of emergency medicine. Positive test results help us. Negative test results frequently don't help us at all. Exactly right. So what about initially normal troponin? You started to talk about it before, but you do see this all the time. Well, I did one troponin. It's negative. I don't have to do anymore. According to the Heart Association, they're basically saying that the troponin, which is considered to be fairly specific for heart, although I see lots of papers that say it's not, is supposed to go up parallel with CKMB, but it's more specific. So, But they say you got to wait something like six, eight hours before you can say, uh, we see no leakage here of this marker, before you can say that this is not... Because as soon as that troponin is up, now the diagnosis is NSTEMI. Right. As soon as you've got marker release, you're now NSTEMI. And as soon as you go... If you look at the group of patients with a negative troponin versus those with a positive troponin, positive troponin, even if it's a little bit positive, it's a bad prognostic sign. Right. But the key thing is that always comes up to me, is there logic? And I think there is. I had my chest pain 14 hours ago. It was very well circumscribed, mm-hmm. went away. My EKG is now normal. I do one troponin now. It's 14 hours since mm-hmm. the onset of your pain. Do I really need to wait another 8 to 12 hours to do another one? Can I, I just so. say... I'm done with this one. No, they don't address that. They don't address that. And Mel, it's like one of those things that seems perfectly logical. The problem with that is I'm not aware of that paper. If you've got that paper, all of us would like to see that because we've all heard this. The other thing is if they have ACS, they may have had their pain 14 hours ago and at that time had no damage or release. That doesn't mean they don't have ACS. What it means is they didn't have an infarct which caused leakage and weeping of that particular marker. Right. I think that is true. I mean, they were certainly looking at a unstable angina, better prognosis than NSTEMI, NSTEMI better prognosis than STEMI, 
Generally speaking, generally speaking, right. I mean, there's some people who are going to have just really bad luck. But the fact of the matter is, is that you could think a really physiological argument and say, listen, one of the things that is unique about troponin, they pointed out in their guidelines, is that this stuff stays up for days. So once you hit it up, it stays up. So if you had been at 14 hours and your troponin bump came out at eight hours later and you measure it at 14 hours, it theoretically, I think you can make a reasonable physiological argument that it should be up. No, what you can say is 14 hours ago, you did not have a damaging MI. You cannot say you don't have acute coronary syndrome. But there's two slightly separate questions. And the reason I continue to harp on it, because this comes up all the time. You are harping, man. Because you're saying, if I'm doing a troponin, I always have to do two. And I think there are circumstances where one is okay. Although I do know of one study, I think it was by Grant Ennis, that said even when you were pretty sure that the onset of pain was 12 hours ago and it was a circumstance pain, when you did one trope and then they did another trope later, there was a bunch of people where the second trope really was yeah. positive. Like they were having ischemia that was beyond that initial pain. It was Well, you know, why, what, is, what is the driver to get them out of the department? You well, know? It's, it's Again, it's not this guy. It's the low-risk patient. Well, they we're talking about the patient that you had. The patient had pain 14 hours ago. But they're 28 years old and they really look good. And I don't know why I did a troponin, but I, somebody did it and I did one. <laughs> Do I really need to wait for the done. second one? I don't think so. I think you can say, look, it was 14 hours ago. You're low risk. Your EKG is normal. Somebody sent this troponin. I don't need to do another one just because one was sent. It's an interesting opinion. I think I can agree with it. We just need to have better research to say that that's true. And I just everything you, you gentlemen obviously review every bit or more literature than I do. Tell me where that paper is. It's going to be very well, useful like the next t- time we go to court. tried to tell you where it is, and it doesn't give us the answer we want. Well, that's one of them. There are some papers <laughs> by Ham and others in the New England Journal in the mid-'90s that actually did that troponin as a prognostic tool, and they just did one, but then they did, in most of these studies, another one later. But if you have an ultra-sensitive troponin by 8 to 12 hours, it's about as good as it's going to get. Right, that's given. So we're talking about 8 hours minimum. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly, let me not confuse <clears throat> people. The real question that comes up, they had their chest pain three hours ago and you do one troponin. That is clearly absolutely horrible. You have to do it at least eight, and many people say 12 hours after the onset of pain. Ooh, I think it's very difficult as you read those numbers. Nobody's going to agree with two hours, but there are certainly people who say that the six-hour number is as good as the eight-hour number. But I think medically, legally... This is a series on medical legal questions. We want to put people in the best possible position medically legally. When you do that next study, you're right. Six hours would be lovely. And we want to see what it is at that point in time. And certainly in between, I mean, all our nurses are instructed, if we're watching somebody, he looks comfortable, his numbers are back, he's had his dinner. If they get another episode of chest pain, Get the EKG at that moment in time because there's nothing as useful as actually having an EKG during the painful episode. Although we did a paper in the abstracts that basically looked at that, and surprisingly, there was a very poor correlation with persisting chest pain and abnormal EKG. Although that doesn't mean that your advice is not good advice, that any recurrence of pain would prompt another EKG to be done. Right. So moving on, have we decided that this person needs more testing to make this diagnosis or exclude this diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome. Yes, we've said that we're worried about this guy. His EKG is normal, doesn't help me. We did one trope, it's negative, I don't care. We need to do more. more we, this guy's saying, I'm high risk. I've selected myself out of all the people who are walking past the ER, who are at the mall, 
I selected myself out and I came to you and I had chest pain. Yeah, we well, it was get only this. 20 minutes went away. Come on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's exactly right. Some heartburn. It was oh. 20 minutes. <laughs> there was a cardiologist who wrote a very interesting paper called Thank God I Had Angina. And then he talked about all the silent MIs in the country. He said the one who's had angina or bouts of angina is the one who's fortunate because that's the one who gives us a chance of picking him up. Tim Russert's problem was he didn't have angina before he went over. You know, he was working at his desk, looked a little clammy and went down. And if he'd been a usual sort of anginal patient in between, we would have had a better shot at helping him. Because the EKG does not necessarily need to correlate with the presence or absence of symptoms being abnormal, if you're not having any recurrence of chest pain, does not mean that you should not take a couple of EKGs during this period of observation. Would you agree with that? Yes, all the guidelines agree with this. At this point, you've selected a med. The high-risk ones have gone upstairs. The lowest, really low-risk ones have gone home. This guy is in that moderate-risk group in the middle. I'm worried about him. So now we have to rule out the disease. That's what we're doing. You've given him aspirin by this time, too. Absolutely. He's given an aspirin as soon as he gets there. Yeah. So now what we have to do is some serial EKGs. We have to do some serial markers. They are going to help us. And then also the time it takes to do those is going to really help us. In the biggest study on this, the one I still like the most, which was Goldman, New England Journal, 1996... At the end of 12 hours, if I did troponins and they were negative, and if, actually they didn't do troponins, that study, but if they did AKGs and they were negative and you had no more chest pain over 12 hours, I could select out a pretty low-risk group. So it's about more testing serially. This is what the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology says. It's about serial troponins. And then at the end of that, now we have another discussion. What else do I have to do? Can I stop there and just send you away or should I do a exercise treadmill? Should I do a thallium? Should I do a CT scan? That's an interesting question. I think it's an interesting question. I think it's fascinating. But why isn't it interesting to you? Because you haven't discovered whether this person has angina, whether that episode was angina, and there is a treatment for angina. And unless you make the diagnosis of angina, and this was certainly a typical angina in terms of its length, that it is required that now that they have survived the eight hours or observation without recurrence of chest pain and their troponins have stayed normal and their EKG are staying normal, that you now put the heart under some element of stress. That's one option. Or you just visualize the coronary arteries by a non-invasive technique. Or And this is one of the talks that we covered in our course this year. What test do you do at the end of this period of benign observation to make the diagnosis or exclude the diagnosis of coronary artery disease. And I don't think that's a settled issue. And we've now come to the spot in the discussion of this patient where there's lots of ways of skinning this cat. Again, the point is, with normal markers and normal EKGs, this seems to me the perfect patient who could receive their stress testing on an outpatient basis. We can't expect that every hospital in the United States can do stress testing around the clock. I agree. It cannot be done. But before we go there, would you both acknowledge that some test needs to be done further? I would say yes in this guy, absolutely. Yes. He's concerning enough that we have to do something else, and our history and physical and EKGs and troponins are not sensitive for picking up unstable angina, which might present later on uh, tomorrow, a week from now, as sudden death, which is what we're trying to avoid. So we have to do some tests. Why I find it interesting is because nobody knows what that test should be. Well, that's a different Exercise, discussion. EKG, a thallium, and a CT, an angiogram. Right. Nobody can decide well, what that test should be. More than that, we have the problem that as we're getting more technology, we don't know how to thin that technology down to what's absolutely essential. For example, the 64-slice scanner was going to be 
the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> it's a slice scanner, I guess. And you know what? As we look at that now, I don't think they know exactly how to apply that. What about getting an ultrasound in the department and looking at wall motion? Is that going to be the way to go? Would that be the next test? I don't think that has arrived at this moment in time. But honestly, it's not our call. But it is our call to say, okay, i got to get you to somebody who's going to do the last step of this thing. Now, what day of the week it is in terms of what test is going to be done, those kinds of things, that's a moving target. There's no question. I think one of the things that we should acknowledge, however, is that the garden variety stress test stinks. Garden variety stress test stinks. Still misses 30%. Yes, and that's an important number to know. It's not good enough. Right. So you're doing that Bruce Jobber and that kind of thing, and the guy passes. Mm-hmm. Forget it. I'm not getting it. It is a huge problem because that's what most people have. So I did the EMA lecture, and I went through all this literature again for the 1500th time, and I determined that the test that you will do at the end of this period of EKGs and observation and troponins and markers, the test that you'll do is... The one that's in your hospital. Exactly. If your hospital does stresses, stress EKGs, you'll do it. If your hospital does thalams, you'll do them. If they do echoes, they'll do them. If they do CT scans, they'll do it. It has nothing to do with the science. It has totally to do with what resources are available at your place. Although your cardiologist ought to know that routine stress test is not where it's at. <laughs> but your cardiologist isn't going to go drop $300,000 on a different <clears throat> technology if they don't have the money. Stop, chief. Our cardiologists, when you talk to them, it depends completely on which cardiologist you speak to, when they were trained, what they believe works. In fact, when I call them up, when I've got a STEMI, when I've got a true STEMI going on, the differences in what they order as far as do they want heparin, don't they, how much, do they want a half-strength abscissimat, all these other (laughs) sorts of things, this goes all over the map. Yeah, actually, we could do one of those in a couple months about some of that stuff. But let it be said that we collectively agree. The reason I say we need to agree is because that's what these guys say. The Heart Association says you need to now do something, and you're right. But they don't tell you what you have to do. So can I ask you the medical question? They say there's a a number of choices, including CT angiograms, which if Jerry Hoffman was listening, he'd roll over. Well, I'm rolling over just thinking about it. But can I ask the medical legal question then? Let's say... You do the exercise treadmill because that's what everybody in your little rural community hospital does. He goes home and is going to get followed up in seven days by his cardiologist. He dies at day three. Can you say, an expert comes in and says, Dr. Herbert, you did an exercise treadmill, Rick Bucutter, everybody says these things are useless. What you should have done is a 256 detector CT. Can you say the standard of care in my community is to do a treadmill because that's the resources we have. We don't have the other tests. I performed at the level of a similarly trained emergency physician under the same circumstances. I did this test, and he died. Can you say that's completely defensible? Well, I think that is completely defensible. The bottom line is you can only do what your testing allows you to do. By the way, if he says, oh, you need a CT, oh, yeah, show me that data. That data isn't that good either. I think the point Rick's making is it's not a useless test. 70 to 75% of people who are positive on that test, then they go on to have direct angio. That's usually what it is. Stress positive, you get studied, stress negative, they treat you medically. By the way, there's a lot of controversy as to which of these studies shows you what you want to know. Still the gold standard for these people who are suspicious on stress is to get a calf. Greg, I wanted to mention something that you thought brought up, that some hospitals... You can't get a stress test whenever you want it. 
Of course not. So there's going to be some gap. The guidelines say, hey, you've passed your eight hours of observation, your negative troponins, no more chest pain, EKG stays stable, no change. You can go home. But they do say something that emergency physicians may or may not know. Number one, they need to remain on aspirin. Number two, if they're taking NSAIDs, they need to stop. Mm-hmm. They need to stop their Celebrex or whatever, whatever, because... Easier oh, oh, said than done. Did I say whatever, whatever? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I haven't called on that et cetera, one. Et cetera, et cetera, yeah. You need to stop their NSAIDs, and they also suggest that you give them some sublingual nitro and or beta blockers as some kind of protective therapy, because you don't know the answer yet. <laughs> you don't know the answer yet. Yeah. They're way out on a limb here. There's no evidence that giving people nitro tablets is actually protective of anything. Again, what they've done now is they've made some generalizations way beyond what the literature will support. I don't care if you give them nitro for their pain, as long as they don't sit home and take the nitro and don't come back in. The nitro would be fine, but if you're having more pain, I want you to return. Oh, yeah. Well, there's no question that that's But don't think that giving up nitro tablets has been shown to decrease the amount of people who die from MIs. No, but I think the part that I found interesting is that they have specific recommendations when there is going to be this gap. First of all, they say this ought to be done within about 72 hours. Now, they don't want to put you in a tight box on that, but that's the kind of the time frame they're talking about. We'll do what we can do, yes. And that during this interval, the reasonable preposition would be try to protect them a little bit. That's all. I think the idea of giving an aspirin is good. If you do have an acute coronary syndrome, it's going to help you. If you don't have an acute <laughs> coronary syndrome, it's not going to hurt you. Stopping non-steroidals and COX inhibitors are associated with increased MI, so that's a good yep. thing to do. As Greg said, there's no evidence zip that nitro does anything for you. And even in the big studies where they actually looked at it, it didn't help. What if I can't get you followed up in 72 hours? I'm guessing that there's a whole lot of people like shaking their head right now and saying, getting follow-up for a patient in 72 hours just does not happen in my community. Uh, you can't get a crummy treadmill test in three days? I can't get one in it's three more days. Than a, wait a second. Time out. It's more than a crummy treadmill test. Somebody has to get the results of the treadmill test. Let's say they do a crummy treadmill test. He's got to send it somewhere. The cardiologist who's read that has to send it to someone. And I think it's more important that this patient pick up the phone, you speak to their internist or their family practitioner, I'm starting this, can you follow these steps up? That's about all we can do, and we need to be honest about it. I mean, is there a risk that someone's going to die in the next three days? Yes. On that basis, you'd have to say everyone needs admission. We can't do that. The system will not handle that. We cannot do it. Is it time for summarization, Mel? Let me go over some of the things that we've talked about so far. So I'm going to begin by going over what we talked about first, which is, I thought, one of the best parts of this CD, actually. It's about the charting. So you told me this stuff, and I think this is really good. Call logs. When we're having any of these interactions, whether with chest pain or other people, we should do call logs. Rick told me that paper is cheap, and so I should spend a little extra time. If I've got a T-system or a non-T-system, I should write down what's going on and do a little spiel about it and don't worry about killing a few more trees. I should be specific about who I've talked to. I should recreate the events. You both said that dictated charts are really good, but most of us don't have dictated charts because they're too expensive, but write this stuff down. Yeah, they do allow you to paint the picture much more effectively in terms of intensity, severity, duration, quality, all of those kinds of verbal (laughs) kind of pictures that you can do. 20 years ago when we first got dictation... One of the hospitals I was working at, 
All the guys bitched and pissed and moaned, saying, eh, it'd be too hard, this, that. Within two weeks, we turned out a bunch of Hemingways. It was a dark and stormy night when Mrs. Smith, wrecked in pain and fear, wandered aimlessly into the, shut up, just get to the <laughs> point. So what I learned from that first bit then is that what I write really matters. So, Greg, let me just make sure this is clear. If I've written a clear note and I've done my medical decision-making, you believe that that's a more defensible chart than just a few checked boxes? Absolutely. If it's timed, if it's properly written, you have a right to your opinion, and there is such a thing as physician judgment. If we know what it is, God love us, it makes us easier. All right, then we got into the part of the tape here, or the CD, or the MP3, where we talked about chest pain, and you noted that missed MI, missed unstable angina, missed acute coronary syndrome, is still big dollars. It's at least 30% of the it's dollars. A, it's a third spend. of our money out the door. That we had to go over the nomenclature, just to be clear that we've got STEMI, which is ST signal elevation MI, we've got non-STEMI, and then we've got unstable angina, which by definition has a negative cardiac marker, but you still have the disease. You told me that I need to tell them on the chart that I've thought about the other bad conditions. I've thought about things like PEs and dissections and bore halves and this other stuff. And the way I can tell them is either with a summary statement that says, I thought about PE, this person is low risk, or by doing things like I look for their legs, and so if they were swollen and I looked at their pulse ox and it was normal, I checked them for risk factors. So one way or the other, or probably a combination of both, you would say, I'm going to tell the person reading this chart, reviewing the chart, that this doc thought about the other bad conditions, right? Correct. We talked about traditional risk factors, and Rick brought this up a lot, that traditional risk factors don't work. Just because you don't have diabetes doesn't mean you don't have an acute coronary syndrome, and that's really very important. These traditional risk factors predict in populations over time, but the patients we see in the emergency department are different. The reason I think it's important is I've seen cases where they try to defend their behavior by saying, I had no risk factors. That means absolutely nothing to me. I think that the use of risk factors is perfectly good in counseling patients who are in your family practice about behaviors, about screening intervals, that sort of thing. But for the acute chest pain in front of you, I agree with Rick, it never influences how I'm going to work that chest pain up. Only in the positive direction when they say, I did have three brothers, they're all dead from MIs. Ah! Okay. Yes, but <laughs> I see now. physicians using it the other way. The other right. way. To excuse they're not following through on this path of serial observation. Yep, and it's useless in that direction. We said that the EKG is a good predictor of acute coronary syndromes, but a normal EKG is completely consistent with the diagnosis of an acute coronary syndrome and unstable angina. And that's an important point. I'm worried about this person. Their chest pain's concerning me. Their EKG is normal. Who cares? Summarize it this way. Positive is positive. Negative is indeterminate. Move on and continue your thinking. That's a really key concept. Yeah. Really key concept. Negative does not mean normal. Right. It means indeterminate. A single troponin, you basically have told me, is risky. Medico-legally risky. To put on a chart a single troponin is a bit of a concern. Now, I've argued, personally, that there might be situations where that might be okay, but you're telling me a single troponin is a risk. Is that right? It's Only when there's a bad outcome. Risk. That's right. And I think that Rick is right. We don't know the numerator on that because we may have all kinds of people who this has happened to, and God is basically kind. You haven't been screwed on a lot of those patients. All I can tell you is, having seen hundreds of these cases, whenever I see one marker and one EKG and a decision they don't have heart disease, danger, Will Robinson, danger. 
We looked at the AHA guidelines that said, look, in these patients that are sort of moderate risk, you have to do serial markers, you have to do serial EKGs, and at the end of that period, you have to do some further testing because that's not enough to rule out unstable angina. That further testing can occur right now if you're lucky enough to have those resources, or it can be delayed, according to the AHA, for a short time, up to 72 hours. And what test you do at that point is really going to depend on what resources you have in your community. You're not going to be judged by the Mayo Clinic's practice guideline for looking after chest pain if you just don't have those resources. But you should understand that some attempt at further restratification and defining whether this is really acute coronary syndrome or not has to occur. I think it's fair to say that at this moment in time of this taping, the exact what is the right answer, what is the best test, I think is up for grabs. I don't think that it is perfectly well known what the best test is, and that varies with the patient, what they can handle, can they walk on a treadmill, can they actually handle certain of these procedures. All we know is that still the gold standard against which we measure everything else is actually doing a cath. So, Greg, tell me if this is true. So I'm going to write on this chat, saw this uh, 55-year-old male with chest pain, Watched him for 12 hours, had a negative EKG initially, two other EKGs were normal. His troponin markers were negative, he had no more chest pain. I discussed this with the patient and I sent him to see his private doctor, Mr. Smith, who will be seeing him in 48 hours to further continue the workup since we do not have any exercise treadmill at this time. Is that a pretty good medical decision-making kind of note? You know what, I'll go to defend that any day. You've protected the patient, I assume that now he's going home, he's pain-free, You've set up the follow-up. You, as the emergency doctor, can't follow every case through to the end. We can't do it. If that's the new standard of care, that we get all this stuff done, then we need five times the number of ER docs in the United States, and we're going to have to call them something else like primary care doctors (laughs) because you can't take every one of them through this. And I think the data that these people are in a fairly low risk in the next 30 days to have a bad outcome is very good. I think that data is very clear. And Rick told me that I should give him an aspirin, and that made a lot of sense, and maybe some nitro or some other stuff, but there's concerns. If he's popping nitros, then maybe we should be doing Well, more. obviously, <laughs> the idea is if you take any one of these, you need to come right back. Right. But in the meantime, if in fact it is successful, you are decreasing at least temporarily some yeah. ischemia yeah. By, there. By the yeah. way, the whole question about should you start them on beta blockers at that moment in time is also a nice idea. I want to see the Framingham-level study that works. I don't believe that study's out there yet. I don't think it's a bad idea, but what it shouldn't do is lead the patient into a false sense of security that we either, A, number one, have the diagnosis, or number two, have treated you successfully for any disease you might have. Yeah, it's just one of those physiologic kind of things. I mean, aspirin is, is kind of physiologic. Screw up your platelets. Yep. Beta blocker, decrease your rate pressure product kind of thing, and yep. oxygen consumption. Yeah, yeah the NSAID question is also, it seems like a good idea. Now, there's no doubt about the fact that NSAIDs in the elderly lead to more heart attacks. And it's not just heart attacks, by the way. It increases the risk of congestive failure. Uh, in fact, there is some data that says it increases the risk of fracture. So I think that there's a lot of problems with the NSAIDs, and it's just good sense to stop them if you can. But, you know, that's not going to be as easy said as done. Now you've got a 75-year-old with bad arthritis who yeah, responds you can, well. Fine. You're going to take Tylenol for the next three days <clears throat> yeah. because it just is not 
reasonable to continue when your diagnosis is unclear. Yep. One of the downsides to giving these patients beta blockers, because this used to come up for us, is that your cardiologist says, yes, I'll be very happy to look after this guy and see him in 48 hours, and I actually have a treadmill in my office, and I'll put him on the treadmill there. I don't want him on beta blockers because I want a good tachycardic response. Right. So they might say, you know, hold those so well, I, that I can get a good I fully test. agree that there is no compelling support to their rather casual mentioning of doing these things. All right. Well, I think that is the summary of the chest pain section of this month's Risk Management Monthly. Normally, we have a more diversified issue, bouncing here and there, but we thought that we needed to give this one our best effort to try to really focus down on (laughs) what would be considered to be, maybe this case needed to be 35. We're talking about the low-risk chest pain cases. The fact of the matter is, low-risk chest pain cases who in fact do have coronary disease at 35, are going to cost you a lot more money when they die than the 85-year-old when they die. Yeah, I think that's important. And I want to bring this up one last time, though, because I know that a lot of people get angry at us when we do this. We're talking about somebody with a reasonable chance of disease when we say low risk. There are those people who are so close to zero risk, we're not going to begin this work upon them, and that's important. Those people get Don't to go Don't go down home. the path. Don't they get, get one. Don't get to go home. Because I see a lot of residents and other people's like, well, everybody's low risk, so therefore everybody has to get admitted and get this workup. No, no, no. No. We're talking low risk, very low risk, bye bye. Be a doctor, as Rick always says. You get paid to make decisions. You got to send some of those 19 year old chest painters home, please. Thank you very much. And we're not talking about the high risk. And you need a plausible alternative diagnosis. You can't call it musculoskeletal chest pain when there's not duplicated by any motions and it doesn't hurt if you touch the No musculoskeletal. Wall. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So shall we end it there with a little wine of the month? Absolutely. Wine of the month. Let's get back here to the good old USA. We've done some great Australians. As a matter of fact, we've done some French. Let's talk about one of our own. And this is one which Wine Spectator is in love with at this moment. And I've had Covey Run Chardonnay. This is from Columbia Valley. And I don't even want to tell you how cheaply you can get this. Tell me. I need to know. Nine bucks a bottle. Nine bucks. Let's go out to Trader Joe's right now. (laughs) Let me tell you how they've summarized this. Light and juicy with lime-accented apple and pear flavors that sing gently through the finish for nine bucks a bottle. It's very interesting that the next wine they were talking about this month is a new one from France, one of the Grand Coors. They said nice things about it, too, but it's $411 (laughs) a bottle. For nine bucks a bottle, that's not much more than drinking Mad Dog 2020. (laughs) And I think this is a good buy and a delicious wine. I recommend it heartily. Now, a number of people asked us to do Beer of the Month. We started that at the beginning. I'm going to give you my Beer of the Month. We had a few parties over the summer. Pacifico. It's a Mexican beer. Many of you know it here. It's like Corona. It's really good. Smooth. When you have it cold on a hot day, it does the job. Just about anything cold on a hot day that's beeroid. That's true. <laughs> if, if we get into this discussion, I, I've always wondered why no one speaks more about what I consider to be the really substantial beer of Mexico, which is Dos Equis. Right. I think it's terrific. And if I had to drink that as opposed to something that looks like peasant urine, <laughs> you know, I'm going to drink the Dos Equis. I like my beer to look like my wee-wee, so <laughs> specific how it is. All right, that's all the time we have here, gentlemen. Thank you. I thought that was really good. You guys did good. You're not bad. Thanks, Mel. Hey, listen, we're complimenting ourselves. <laughs> we want you to compliment us on uh, Risk Management Monthly whatever. website. Yes, go to the survey. Yes. Give us Spaz your feedback. Monkey, whatever it's called. Thank you. Bye bye for now. See ya.